This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, Trek FM's dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the wonderful, the splendiferous, the terrific, the very well-read, mostly because of this show, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? How's it thank going you. today? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight, and please remember to tip your waiters. But, uh, I, you know, I think I like it that you said I'm well-read, because usually I have a certain uh, rhythm on how I read and, and, and how much reading I do in a week, but for some reason I've been able to figure out some way that I'm able to read more often now. Hmm. I don't know why, but I'm just, I don't know how, but uh, like I'm getting to a point now that I think I'm going to be f- doing three novels a, in a week. Wow. Maybe not quite, maybe <laughs> two and a half, but right now I'm trending really well. Like I'm already like going into the next novel for an episode we're recording two weeks from now. That's amazing. That's awesome. I, uh, I've been reading a lot, ironically, about how to be able to read more. And one of the things they suggest that I might try is getting up earlier, getting up, you know, a couple hours earlier than you usually do and spending that time, you know, reading or, you know, doing other stuff. But the reading part really attracted me there. I think that's a really, I might try doing that, but, uh. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Well, and I've been setting time aside more often, like, okay, I'm going to read for this long at this time. And I'm also shutting off my phone mm-hmm. and putting it off to the side. And because you'd be amazed, and I mean, not everybody's like this, but I, I would probably be surprised how much time I spend on my phone, like looking at social media and other things. Yeah. Even playing solitaire or something on my phone. <laughs> and now it's like, if I, put that away, I get more reading. I think that's really important. And I think that's a very common problem. I definitely know it is with me. And I really like what you said too, about setting aside, uh, setting aside time. That's something that, you know, 
a lot of times I find like, oh, I'll get this book read by this point and oh, something's come up. Oh, this has come up. Oh my goodness. I have three days left. I need to finish this book now. Uh, and I'm, you know, 10% in or something like that. So that idea of setting aside time and saying, okay, on this, at this time during, on this day, I'll do nothing but read. That's I think really important. I think a lot of people could really benefit from that. So it's good advice. We want to actually, I'm going to put that out there to our listeners as well. You know, let us know what are your reading habits? How do you, how do you fit in time to read books? Because I think this is something that a lot of people maybe overlook or tend to ignore. So that's really cool. I like that. Yeah. I mean, you can even, uh, you know, whatever, email us or tweet us, Facebook, whatever, or go to our Goodreads group. So if you're not in our Goodreads group, look for Literary Treks and come on in and we can have the discussion there. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've got a few items in our news segment today before we get to our feature. And our feature is going to be on the Enterprise novel Last Full Measure. And we've got special guest Brandy Jackala joining us to talk about that. So that'll be really exciting. But first, we've got some comics news uh, first news item has to do with the Star Trek New Visions uh, comics, and unfortunately, they will be concluding soon after four years. Issue number twenty-four of the Star Trek New Visions photo comic will end with that with issue twenty-four. So, kind of sad um, news there. I've been really, I, I feel like they've gotten a lot better lately you know, the, the upward trend on quality has been really good with those. Uh, and it's kind of sad that they'll be ending soon. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if it's ending because John Byrne is like, I think I've used every photo that's available <laughs> out there now. And that might very well be, you know, it might be, might be a good thing too. You know, you kind of want to quit while it's on top. Um, and yeah, maybe it's, it's a little bit getting a bit repetitive. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah. Or, or they're being really sneaky and they're going to announce, we're going to do the next generation Ooh. as a photo comic. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be really cool. I, I know John Byrne himself is a much bigger original series fan than Next Generation. So I don't know if, if it would be him that would be spearheading that, but that's a neat idea. I like that. And there would be a lot more photographic material for the next generation, a in, you know, really good high definition and B seven seasons as opposed to three. So yeah, there'd be a lot more to draw on. That's a great idea. Yeah. Or any of this series of the Star Trek series. That's true. Know? Yeah. Well, we do also have another comic to review today, actually. And this one's Star Trek discovery number three. That's the third issue in the light of Kalis series. So, Let's jump right into that. And uh, Bruce, what are kind of your initial thoughts on on this issue? I'm liking it. I'd, gosh, I hadn't really thought. Sorry, I read this a couple of days ago. Mm. So it's not that it's not fresh in my mind. I'm just trying to think how I think of this issue compared to the previous two. Uh, I, I think the thing is I'm really liking how this story is advancing. Mm. Uh, and how it's giving us more insight into the ship and Takuvma and Voke and maybe we'll get into a little later. I don't, I don't think it's a spoiler, but there was something in here that I found very shocking that I thought was 
a connection to Vogue, but then it played <laughs> off as if maybe it's not. I know exactly what you mean, and I had the exact same thought. Um, yeah, well, let's let's get into the story a little bit. So at the end of the last one, Takuvma returned home uh, for his sister's wedding, basically, and it turned out that her new husband basically slew all the males in, in Takuvma's family, and the plan apparently is to have their children inherit both houses and all this stuff. And Takuvma feels it's a betrayal of, of their family. And, uh, his sister is in on this and, and it's, you know, this whole messy situation. And yeah, I really like that. It's showing this background where Takuvma came from, you know, it's giving him more layers as, you know, than just the kind of single layered villain we saw in uh, the two part beginning of Star Trek Discovery. I'm really enjoying this backstory and kind of getting a little bit more of a glimpse into what made him who he is, the Klingon that we see in those episodes. Yeah, me too. And just to learn that, you know, his family passed, uh, his sister and such that, you know, she kind of you know, she portrays him and she's the one who really encouraged him to look for the light of Kalos. Mm-hmm. And now she's fighting against him. And it just kind of shows in Klingon society that if you're trying to protect your house or your own standing, you might have to give up your own family members and betray them in order to continue on your house legacy mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. And this was kind of the one thing that I'm not digging all that much is kind of his sister's motivations and why she's doing what she's doing. It's kind of weird to see such a flip of her character. And I mean, Takovma is gone for quite a while. So, you know, that happens while he's gone, but you know, it's kind of disappointing to see her make those decisions. And so, yeah, one thing that happens in this story that we kind of alluded to is, uh, basically, um, Takuvma is sent on his way. He's uh, kicked out of the family so that he can't inherit anything of the house, but he's given the family's ancestral ship, which is, of course, the sarcophagus ship that we see in Discovery. And in the meantime, his sister has a child with her new husband, and the child turns out to have that same white-colored skin that we see Voke have later. And I totally, I'm with you because I'm assuming that you thought like I did that, oh my God, this child is Voke and this is Voke's origin and and he didn't really know, but no. And not only that, but Voke is then related to Takuva. Yeah. So, but it turns out that that's not the case. He just kind of has the same condition that Voke has and the child was killed uh, by the mother now we don't actually see this happen right we just that's what i'm just gonna say so i'm wondering if that's maybe an issue for reveal that we'll get and we just kind of pieced it together early but right now the comic is saying that they're not the same person that he just had the same condition as Vogue. but but yeah if he really wasn't killed and he was just taken off somewhere or just you know they what left him on a doorstep somewhere mm-hmm. then if that baby was Voke, then he 
in that circumstance would be from the house of none. Mm -hmm. That's true. And also, you know, it really feeds into the mythology, right? I mean, it really makes it like a Moses type story, you know? Yeah. So I, I could see them going that way. And, uh, I don't know. Part of me kind of hopes they do because I think that's a really, I don't know. A, it's a little bit cliched, but B, it also, it's, it's kind of cool. So I don't know. I'm well, kind of of two minds. If they, and if they don't go that way and we can always leave this thinking, well, like you said, we didn't really see him get killed. So we can leave with the speculation that he may or may not be related to Takuma. That's true. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I really liked this issue. I thought it was cool. Um, went in, di- in directions that I didn't expect. And the way it ends is a lot closer, I think, to the time period of the battle at the binary stars than I was expecting this story to get to. So it's really filling in that entire, uh, history from, you know, to Kuvma's youth up to, I, I, I'm assuming this story is probably going to end right at where the Vulcan hello and battle of the binary stars start. Yeah, that's what it seems like it's leading to. And I, I, I'm i like you where I thought, oh, this is closer to that moment than, than I thought. So, uh, yeah, this is definitely a prequel that re- leads right, I think, into that first episode. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a, the previous issue or either the first one. I think it was the previous one where we mentioned, you know, we got to see Klingon butt and we got to see that again here. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to mention, yeah, we do get a little bit of Klingon butt here. So, you know, if you haven't picked this comic up yet, you have that to look forward to. So there you go. Yeah. And then after this run, there's going to be other discovery comics coming too. Yeah. uh, This is a good uh, run to have filling in the void and the novels that we're getting until we get season two coming back for discovery. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to those future series. I'm really enjoying this one. I have to say probably more so than I thought I would, you know, when it was announced, it would be to backstory. I was kind of like, eh, uh, whatever, but I'm actually really enjoying these stories. You know, I I'm really liking where the story is going. And, uh, but I'm also really looking forward to those other ones. You know, we're getting Culber and Stamets kind of their origin story from what I hear, as well as a story set in the mirror universe, I think. So, you know, really looking forward to some of this stuff coming from IDW and Kirsten Beyer and other authors and artists. So I really can't wait to see where it goes from here. What do you say we we talk about an Enterprise novel, Last Full Measure, with our special guest today? Yeah, I'm excited because I think it's been a while since we've done an Enterprise book, so I'm looking forward to this one. Awesome. Well, today we're popping back in time a little bit to talk about an Enterprise novel. This one is Last Full Measure by Andy, Andy Mangles and Michael Martin, published back in 2006. And joining us in this discussion is someone we've not had on Literary Treks before, and we're really excited to have her, Brandy Jackala. Hi! Brandy! <laughs> I'm so excited. Welcome, to... how's it going? Oh, uh, we'll just say it's going fine, because for the most part it is. So, no, I'm so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Well, it's about time you show up on the show. 
Oh, excuse me. How many times was I begging you to let me come on the show? I went to see how Live from the Edge went through the whole season. And then I was at the end that I could go, okay, I think she's worthy enough. Oh, oh, I see how it is. (laughs) I see how it is. Well, you just wait until season two happens. There's going to be some changes around here. Yeah, when is that? Wait for season two. (laughs) I I don't know yet because they haven't announced the date. So I know it's. Oh man. (sighs) Well, it's great to have you on for sure. And like you said, you've been begging to come on the show. We've been wanting you on the show. It's just it's it's wish fulfillment for everyone. We've got you on. So, and especially to talk about this particular novel. This one has kind of a special place in the history of Enterprise books. It's not technically a relaunch novel. It doesn't take place after the series. It's actually set during season three. But it is really notable for a revelation about a character that many Star Trek fans feel was wronged at the end of Enterprise, uh, including, I think, everybody on the the panel here today. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. yep. So we'll 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 get to that because as usual we don't really give spoilers in the first half. Again, this novel's been out for quite a while, so maybe that's not a huge concern, but still for the first part of this we'll be a little bit non-specific, non-spoilery talking about what happens in this novel. All right. Thanks oh. for the warning. No, I know how this goes. I listen to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> wow, she does she listens. That's great. Um so I'm just curious from you guys. I read this novel when it first came out. So is that true for you? Well, I actually didn't read it when it first came out. I did read it a few years ago. 2012 uh, was when I first read this novel. Uh, So I didn't pick it up when it first came out, but the whole twist ending regarding the character was spoiled for me. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I got to pick this novel up at some point. Uh, I, I, it's okay though. I didn't mind. I was just excited that that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> and actually I did read the good that men do and like that whole novel before reading this one. So it was kind of a case of going back and filling in the, you know, the first clue about that. So Brandy, how did you first read this novel? Uh, well, when I decided I was coming on literary treks, no, thanks to Bruce. <laughs> Not kidding. Um, I decided I wanted to do an Enterprise book because I am a co-host on Trek FM's Warp 5, the Enterprise dedicated podcast. And, you know, I was trying to watch Enterprise when it was first airing, but the local affiliate made that very difficult in seasons three and four. It started being a mess in season two, but then three and four, it was just never on when it was scheduled. And I didn't have a DVR way back then. Hardly anyone did. So the long and short of it is, is that I only fairly recently rewatched the entire series and out of it grew a much greater appreciation than what I had before. So I wanted to expand that appreciation into the novels and it was a trick finding one you guys hadn't done yet. So, but we did it. <laughs> we did it with last full measure. Yeah. I think it's important to point out that we let Brandy choose the novel for the show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, you did. And I appreciate that. Me too. And in my opinion, you picked a good one because I really do enjoy this novel. So it was fun to be able to reread it. Uh, so like we mentioned, 
this novel, Last Full Measure, takes place during the third season of Enterprise. And specifically, according to the historian's note, it takes place between the first and second episodes, so between the Zindi and Anomaly. And in this book, it's continuing that whole season-long arc that they did in Enterprise. See, Discovery wasn't the first. Enterprise did do it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's maybe true. not on the same level, but yeah. Um, so in this novel, the crew's searching for hints about the Zindi and their weapon with which they are going to attack Earth. And the story kind of centers on two missions. There's one led by Archer and Reed to kind of follow clues and try and find the construction site for this weapon. And they find this uh, alien trader who seemingly has some clues and and that all goes on there. And then there's a secondary mission where Mayweather pilots a group of Makos ostensibly to gather intelligence on what turns out to be a Zindi fuel depot. And that mission takes many different turns and becomes something very different from how it started out as. But overall, I'd say this novel is an examination of fundamentally the relationships between the Starfleet crew and the Makos on the ship, which I thought was really interesting. I liked, you know, it was interesting for me because when I started, excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, everyone. So, or not getting over it. I'm just starting it, but uh, wait till the end of the show. It gets really interesting. But when, I started reading this novel. Not, I'm not talking about the first time, but for this show, when I was rereading the novel, I got to about chapter th- two, three, something like that. And I went back to watch the first episode of season three called The Zindi. And I watched the episode, then went back to the novel, continued reading it. And as I was reading the novel, it felt very similar to at least the first half of the novel felt very similar to the first episode of the season. So it kind of felt a little disappointing because I kept getting the two confused because they felt similar where it's we're trying to find the Zindi and then we go to some planet and we find someone who's not a Zindi but had contact with a Zindi. And and I started to question myself, why was this book even written? I, I Don't get me wrong. I like the book. But that was one of the things that it's like, I don't know how much this really added to the story, but I think when we get further into the discussion, um, I think it adds some to the whole Zindi arc. But I was questioning as I was reading the book, you know, I just felt it was at least the first half repetitive. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. It didn't, it didn't feel super repetitive to me. The one thing that I was worried about is because it's so early in season three, I worried that I was going to become frustrated with going backwards and remembering that time where people weren't getting along and they were still struggling to just find a Zindi in the first place. And I thought, is this going to frustrate me? And as I got further into the book, then I couldn't just, I just couldn't put it down. As I got to about that, probably about the halfway point, I just thought, okay, well, um, rest of my day plans are done because I have to finish this book now. So, and that was okay. It was a weekend, but it was one thing I feel that they really got right was the characterization because Travis sounded like Travis. Hoshi sounded like Hoshi. Trip sounded like Trip. It was very easy to actually picture the, the actors in my mind speaking those lines. And I didn't feel like anything that was done there was out of character. So I appreciate that very much. 
Mm-hmm. I think plot-wise, the authors had a little bit of a, a tricky situation because it takes place during a season in which you know, some very specific things happen and it's plotted out over the course of a season, they can't really advance that story too much. And we'll get into it on the second half with spoilers, but I think there's some really creative things done to actually make it feel like it's been advanced quite a bit and it it changes a little bit of what happens in season three uh, once you've read this book, which was really surprising to me and I'd kind of forgotten that the first time I read it and rereading it this time, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool but it's still you know you can't really it's one of those things where you do have to put the toys back on the shelf the way they were when you started because it fits so specifically in a very specific period of time which i mean you know and that's something that a lot of people appreciate i mean there's a lot of people that still want and enjoy novels set during the original five-year mission or people who want to see novels set during the Enterprise D seven year season kind of thing. So, you know, there, there's pros and cons to that. But the the way this story turns out, I think, is much more about the characters than really the plot that happens. As as interesting and as good as that plot is. No, I agree. Exactly. I think as I was reading it, as I was saying, I was wondering why did the authors choose to do this? It's like you're saying there isn't a lot of room in season three to really do something big or do something different. And this is a year after enterprise went off the air and for these authors to get together and say, okay, well let's, let's write a new enterprise novel and let's sandwich it between two episodes. And we're not necessarily answering anything that came up in those episodes. We're not touching on something that people were wondering about. So let's explore it. It just seemed like they were like, you know what? What, in, what if there was one more episode in the Zindi arc? Let's let's put one in the beginning and just kind of put that in there. And I guess I questioned why they would choose to do that. But as you're saying, when we get to the end of the book, then you start to realize it's really defining the characters and really setting them up for this whole season. So yeah, I, I think you you got it on the nail there. It's it's not about the plot as much. But it's about the characters. And a lot of times that's what makes the best novel, in my opinion, is when it's about the characters. Yes. When you have well-written characters, you can do so much more. If the characters aren't fleshed out, if they don't engage the reader, then everything else falls apart. It doesn't matter what kind of great idea you have in the plot. It's just if the characters aren't relatable, if you can't find something in one of them that you can relate to, your story is just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Brandy, I think you also hit the nail on the head earlier too when you said they captured the voices of these characters really well. Mayweather especially, yes. who is a character, I think, and I mean a lot of people think, got really short trift in Enterprise. So underdeveloped. Yes. Absolutely. And that's what I love probably most about this novel is we get a lot of Mayweather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's undeniably Mayweather too. It's not just some ensign, right? Like they capture his voice perfectly and it's really, really well done. Absolutely. So through Mayweather and his story, especially we get this whole squids versus sharks. And this is kind of a, a, what Marines versus the Navy kind of thing. The Marines are the, are the sharks, the, the, and the Makos and the Navy 
Starfleet are the squids. And they don't really get along. So we've got this. This is very part of the reason I think they said it very early in season three is everyone's just adjusting to this new routine. These Makos have just been assigned to Enterprise alongside, you know, these space veterans, but maybe they haven't seen quite as much combat as these guys have. So there's, you know, this tension between them. And this to me is the thing that I love the most about this novel, because this theme was touched on lightly in the series, mostly between Reed and Hayes. You know, we get that epic fist fight between them in one episode, which is, I guess, one way to deal with that. But uh, this book, I think, goes into that fundamental clash of cultures, basically, in a way that the show never did. And I mean, Star Trek just has this history of doing that. You know, you have the Maquis and Starfleet aboard Voyager, but two years in, they're like, nah, they all get along. And, you know, Mako versus Starfleet on the ship, they set that up, but, you know, it really becomes just a personal thing between Reed and Hayes. It doesn't really get the exploration that it does in this novel. So what did you guys think of that whole culture clash, I guess, between the squids and the sharks? You mean West Side Story, the Jets and the Sharks? That epic scene in the launch bay where they're all facing off, snapping their fingers. When you're a squid, you're a squid all the way. Sorry. Hey, there has to be singing. It's literary tracks. There has to be singing from somebody at some point. I just thought I'd get it in early. Well, thank you for doing that. It's my pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Well, I I liked it because I remember when the series, the season premiered. And I felt like they were really trying to make the show more action-packed. And then when they brought the Makos in, I was like, oh, okay, here we go. We have to have the brutes, you know, the strong guys are going to fight and, you know, shoot guns. And this is going to be the action part of it. But I love the whole dynamic of, you know, merging these two crews, in a sense, together. And, you know, the squids and the sharks and and... Again, I think that, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the book. I said about Mayweather was my favorite part, but the two kind of go hand in hand because I feel like the, a lot of that character development we're getting from Mayweather is through his relationship and um, him dealing with how different the Makos are, especially Chang, his roommate, who likes a very clean room and apparently uh, Mayweather's a little messy. <laughs> <laughs> So, but then, you know, as things go along, which shouldn't be a surprise, they start to recognize things in each other that they can admire. And, uh, I mean, it's not all perfect at the end, but, you know, they kind of get over a few little things here and there. But I, I enjoy that type of story uh, in this book. Mm-hmm. And it's still very grudging, which I like. I like that. <laughs> of I like that it's not all tied up in a nice, neat little bow. There's like real animosity between them especially when we get you know peeks into mayweather mayweather's inner monologue or chang's inner monologue like these guys just hate each other like they get on each other's nerves and their fundamental worldviews are just out of sync and uh just as a quick side note i love that it's corporal chang that they focus on because in the series he was played by daniel day kim who is one of my absolute favorite background actors that just shows up in everything and i love him i do too <laughs> i i will watch anything he's in i don't care what it is and so when season three happened and the makos came on board i'm like 
Daniel Day Kim. Yes, because yes. he's in Hawaii Five-0, right? And he was in Well, Moss. I don't know. I think he might have left that show. Did he leave that? Okay. He might. Yeah. He might have. I, yeah. I actually, I, I don't follow it anymore as much as I used to because there's just too much to watch. But he's really <laughs> he's he's a voice of a major character in one of my favorite um, raunchy, really um, offensive video games, which is Saints Row. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> Saints Row 2 and 3 and 4. He is the voice <laughs> of Johnny Gat. And he is so good. He is so good. <laughs> and it's just mm, Daniel Day Kim. Yeah, I, I really appreciate also that they chose him because I could hear his voice in my head when Chang was was saying things in the book. So perfect choice. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, I love every time he shows up in Star Trek, which has been a couple times, which is nice. Uh, and like I watched Lost and uh, even Crusade, that spinoff of Babylon 5 that lasted I watched that a too. season. I watched that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh, yeah, he's great in everything. Yeah. And yeah. I, I Oh, man. I would love. I, I know everyone just talks about this and this is maybe he should be the captain of Discovery next season. That would be really cool. Ooh. Anyway. Ooh, I'm down for that. <laughs> I mean, if we can't have a lady, then I'm down for Daniel Day Kim. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be awesome. But yeah, so we get that examination of the the those fundamental differences between the Makos and Starfleet through, especially, like I said, Mayweather and Chang. And this mission that they have to go on, of course, Mayweather has to pilot the mission and Chang leads the contingent of Makos. So, you know, of course, that's going to come to come to a head. Yeah, but w- real and quick, really before does. you get further, one part I did like about this is when Mayweather's assigned uh, to go on this mission, he's given four Mako officers, and out of all the officers are, or, or of all the Makos are on the ship, Chang has to be just one of the four that has to go with him. And he quest- he almost goes to Archer or whoever to try to get Chang reassigned, and then he realizes... <laughs> No, you know, the best thing to really do is just make it work. You know, you you can't just go running Mm. to, I don't like him. You know, (laughs) it's like, no, you know, we've got to make this work. The best thing to do is just suck it up and deal with it and try to resolve things and and try to make it work. We have to work as a team. And I like that part about about Mayweather in this. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just want to plug that in there when you got to that part. Yeah, no, and, and that's very true. I really... You know, as much as we're we're talking about the animosity between them and and the the thoughts they have about each other and just this kind of visceral dislike, they really are very professional for the most part. There's a few incidents that like uh, when they come up, even even then though, even when it kind of comes to a head, they're still relatively professional and recognize the fact that they have to accomplish this mis- mission together. They have to figure it out. They have to make it work. Okay, well, if you're not going to do what I say, or if you're not going to take my recommendation, okay, I'm going to help you out to try and make this work as best I can, kind of thing. And they both do that, which I really appreciate. And and what I already understand as a human being, but don't necessarily always practice properly, is that everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And the reason the Makos are on Enterprise is because they have strengths that your standard Starfleet officer doesn't necessarily have. And so, mm-hmm. and they're basically 
preparing for war. They feel they it's it's like going into war because once they find the Zindi, they're going to do everything they can to stop that weapon. And if that means, you know, killing a bunch of Zindi, then that's what's going to happen. And so they have this mindset that they're basically going to war. And so I understand why the Makos are there and I appreciate that. But the Starfleet people aren't as happy about it because they feel like, well, we should be able to do everything. We can do everything. We have training. And so they kind of balance each other out because what the Makos don't have that the Starfleet personnel do, yeah, it, it all balances out. So, But they mm. don't realize that yet. They have to come together and have conflict first and then they figure it out towards the end of the season. <laughs> but you know, isn't that rift between the two groups kind of lasts through most of season three? From it does last through most yeah. of season three. So Which it's is only more so that we we didn't get that as long with Voyager between the, the Maquis yeah, it, crew. It felt like it was about two episodes and then everybody's fine together. <laughs> I know it was longer than that, but it felt like, oh, episode three, everybody's fine. Yeah. There, there's a bit in season two with the, the I know, Maquis I know, and that kind of thing. I know. But it really does feel like after the pilot episode, they pretty much get along until, you know, there's four troublemakers that Tuvok has to rehabilitate. And then and that's about it, except for Jonas and that kind of thing. Well, what's but. interesting is that these <laughs> Bash Voyager podcasts. <laughs> Sorry to the journey to the journey. Seska, don't forget Seska. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. So when you have these two groups, they're on the same mission. They're on the same goal. Yet they have a hard time sometimes working together because you know, they they point fingers at each other and they're different from one each other. And I get that. And we see that in our lives all the time. I see that at work between certain departments, you know, that's what we all have the same mission, but again, everybody's pointing to the other and, you know, well, they're not like us and they don't get it and vice versa. They're saying that about my group or the other group or whatever. And it's, it just seems to be so much of human nature that people are always judging and pointing to those that, are not part of their group and not just that those who are different, but just those who aren't in their circle in their group. And it's fascinating that humanity continues to do that. Even when both groups have the same common goal, like they do in this mm -hmm. situation with going after the Zindi, because you would think that the enterprise crew would welcome with open arms, the Makos and say, yes, let's get these Zindi. Let's end this now. Let's save our planet. We're all in this together. Let's do it. But instead it's almost like the enterprise crew is against the Zindi and yeah, kind of the Makos too and vice versa. The Makos mm -hmm. are doing the same thing. And it's just, you know, <laughs> it just makes me think about those things, how, and I see it in a daily all the time, whether it's on, you know, in the press or in the news or on TV or something. And, and then I see it, like I said, in work and other social situations. And it's like, when do we get to a point and maybe we don't in the Roddenberry future <laughs> where we can just accept all groups and not point to the, each other. Yeah. I think fundamentally, and I'm, I'm kind of jumping around a bit on our outline, but I probably should have combined this a little bit. Like fundamentally, this book I think is about differing perspectives and we have, like I say, the the differing perspectives of Starfleet versus the Makos. And 
like you say, Bruce, it's something that we see all of the time. And, you know, these two groups, they bring their own experiences and their own stories to the mission at hand. And there's attempts to kind of bridge the gap between them. But fundamentally, there's almost just a different worldview at work here. You know, and that comes from the different organizations they've joined, how they got to where they are, and the, you know, overarching I want to say mission statement or ethos of the groups they belong to all of that kind of comes together to create this, this conflict. And, you know, one thing, when I first read this novel, I had just returned from living for two years in Korea, teaching English. And I met so many different people there. And the funny thing was like, not even talking about Koreans that I met in Korea who are very different and have a hugely different background than what I came from, even just other expats that I met there who had come to the country for very different reasons. You know, there's 30,000 American troops stationed in Seoul and going out and socializing, you meet some of them and you become friends with a few of them and hang out and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's American GIs living there that I hung out with who have come to this country for a completely different reason than I have, who maybe it wasn't necessarily their choice to travel to Korea, but I chose to travel to Korea and were there for very different reasons. And just, you know, there's all these misunderstandings, failures to communicate, but ultimately, you know, you just kind of have to bridge those gaps and and figure out how to be friendly towards one another. And especially in this case, when you're on this mission together, you have these very different uh, past experiences coming together, which I thought was really interesting and resonated in a, in a way I wasn't expecting when I read this book. It also, it kind of reminds me of family. Like I dated oh, this girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I dated this girl years ago. And uh, yes, before I was married. And, <laughs> but, but uh, I remember, uh, you know, things, you know, were going well in the beginning, but then as time went on, she would, you know, times not treat me all that well or whatever. I mean, she would take her anger out on me for whatever reason or, or whatever. And then like other people that she didn't know as well or who were strangers, she treated, you know, as if the, you know, she hugged them and was so friendly and so nice. And I remember her sister saying, she must really like you and be comfortable with you because she's treating you like crap. Like she does the rest of the family. She only does that for the people she really knows real well and likes. And I think about that even when I'm reading this book and, and, and this season of the Zindi arc, because when we see Malcolm not really given the Makos a chance and judging them, and there's a prejudice against them because of where they are. And again, they have all the same mission, but yet if we were to go to a planet well, let's learn about this race. Let's get to know them. They may be different from us, but let's let's understand them. But yet the person that he's sharing a cabin with, he's not even going to take the you know, opportunity to try to get to know him and find the common ground. And and it's just so funny. It reminds me, it makes me think of that. It's like, you know, we're all part of one family, but we're not going to try to get along because I don't like you. But, oh, when we go visit a planet that we don't know, we're going to open our arms wide and give them a hug. <laughs> yeah a little a bit it's of kind of funny <laughs> yeah well especially coming from mayweather too who is a boomer right? yes he, i was just gonna know. bring that up and you beat me to it Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well like kind of bruce you were saying i bet you he got into way bigger fights with his brother on the horizon than he did with aliens they met on Draylax or whatever right right he's not wrestling like, yeah. aliens <laughs> 
But but that's the thing about family is that they're always going to be your family no matter how you treat them. And I think people get stuck in that mindset and then don't take as much care to understand the people who really should be the most important people in your life. But that's just my opinion. But it's just it's it's basically a battle on the ship between explorers and fighters. We got a ship full mm. of explorers and we've got these fighters now who have come on board and you know the Makos have this attitude of well obviously Starfleet doesn't think Archer is up to this task that's why they brought us in instead of actually you know like talking with Archer coming to some kind of mutual understanding about their goal or anything like that so both sides are having misconceptions and they're allowing that to fuel their behavior rather than just talking to each other <laughs> use your words right i mean that's it's the lesson that applies at every stage in your life and almost every situation you know use your words yeah chances are the person you're talking to has no idea where you're coming from you know and that mm -hmm. comes back to the whole differing perspectives thing so yep absolutely well i think it's probably time we jump into spoilers and yes. talk about the actual plot and what's going on in this book instead of kind of dancing around it. <laughs> so um, first of all, let's talk about this mission that Archer and Reed are on with, you know, Donna O'Neill, who's this uh, literary character who pops up every once in a while in Andy Mangles and Ma um, Michael Martin's books. <laughs> There's a lot of M's there. I couldn't yeah. <laughs> remember just for a second. Um, and, and a bunch of Makos and, so this mission, they're, uh, they're handling, they're basically discovered this freighter smuggler guy, Laandrav? Yeah, let's go with that <laughs> because sure. I got no idea how that is pronounced. So we'll go with that. Yeah. So during that mission, basically they, they steal away on this guy's freighter because he has some intel about where the Zindi are supposedly constructing this weapon that's going to destroy earth and Archer and Reed kind of come to some, let's say differing perspectives on a situation there as well. And Bruce, I see that you kind of made note of this in the outline. What, what kind of happens? What do you think about what happens with Archer and Reed here? Yeah. Again, this plays into the whole season. And I keep mentioning about the season because what this book did, it prompted me to rewatch the season and I'm not, I'm almost like halfway through and I see a lot of parallels in this book and with some of the other episodes, but you know, Archer. And I remember at the time when this season premiered too, that they wanted to give more edge to Archer that apparently, and I don't know where I read this at the time, but you know, that people thought Archer was a little too soft and a little too wide eyed and eager to explore. And I'm sorry. Did they watch season one? <laughs> I'm telling he you, I just, jerk. I just remember reading that. And now it's like, you know, now, you know, Scott Bakula has to come on screen and just spit out everything he's saying and stuff. And well, they, they made it very apparent because we see th season three start and all of a sudden he's unbuttoned the top two buttons of his shirt. Yeah. And so, he has more veins you know, in his oh. neck than he used to have. <laughs> well, that's because he unbuttoned the top two buttons. You can see the veins now. We couldn't he see wants them. to show them off. <laughs> Yes. So as so as Scott Bakula is showing off his veins, we we see some of that in this book, too, even though the authors don't necessarily, you know, spell out that. But, you know, as Archer is fighting this 
you know, smuggler and Reed, who is security, is the one who's like, you know, Captain, I think you, know, you should kind of back up and turn it down. That's not very Starfleet. And Archer almost has the opinion of like, you know, this isn't really a time to be Starfleet. You know, we have to do whatever we can to save Earth. And I really enjoyed seeing Reed struggling with the, well, where, where is the line that you cross? And we're not really seeing it as much from Archer's perspective, but from Reed's perspective of not just what is that line that you cross, but also what is the Starfleet line too? And, you know, and what does it mean to be a Starfleet officer and how far do you take things and when can you bend the rules and when can't you? And also, when do you point this out to your commanding officer? When, when is the right time to say, or is it ever a right time to say you're going too far and I'm, I'm, you know, is this career suicide? Because Archer doesn't seem very receptive to anything Reed's saying. And Reed is being very logical about things. I mean, I almost feel like if T'Pol said this stuff to Archer, he would be more willing to accept it than hearing it from Reed. What's what's kind of interesting about this novel too is that whole, you know, the traditional kind of structure of a novel, you would expect by the end, Archer would have learned his lesson and gone to read and said, you were right. What was I thinking? Blah, blah, blah. But they can't do that because in the very next episode that takes place after this, we see another scene again with Reed standing close nearby where Archer throws this alien pirate into the airlock and is threatening to space him because he won't give up some information about the Zindi. And it's, it's some dark stuff. So, you know, that was one thing that when I was reading this novel, I was like, Oh, where's the payoff? Oh, right. They can't do that. And then, you know, I was waiting for that too. It's kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I was, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> it throws you for a loop because yeah. Yeah, that's not how novels usually go. Yeah, and then there's me, because I'm this super empathetic person, and I'm thinking about all of the pressure that Archer is under as the captain of this ship, as the leader of this mission. It's up to him. I mean, it all rests on his shoulders. The actions of everybody else, yeah, it's all comes back to him. And so he has put this immense burden upon himself. Well, Starfleet did too, really. And that is a heavy load to carry and still maintain that Starfleet code of honor. Because honestly, there are times where you think that there is no other way than to beat the crap out of somebody or to torture somebody. And and so when that started to happen with Troth? Troth? Um, <laughs> it has to be said like that every troth. time with that uncertainty. Like troth? there's three question marks after it too. <laughs> That's the E at the end. Is it? Uh? <laughs> so troth? when that starts to happen, the first thing that I am thinking is, oh, he's, he's giving in to that burden. And the second thing I thought is trap. It's a trap. He's taking you into a trap. Why are you going there? So. Mm-hmm. But then, <laughs> as a Star yeah. Wars fan, it would be too easy for me right now to say something. I know. Just go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, just, no. Just do it. No. You want to quote Admiral ah, Yeah. Dang. You wanted it. <laughs> we all wanted it. It had to be done. Well, as somebody who just watched Empire Strikes Back a few days ago, Akbar's not the first person to have said that. Leia famously yelled to Luke in Cloud City, It's a trap! Yep. And I was like, hey, 
That's not your line. Actually, it's more, it's a trap. <laughs> a trap! Exactly. <laughs> With a few screamed blokes in there as well, yeah. you know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so back to this, like, like you said, it is a trap. And like a famous Mon Cal admiral said, <laughs> it is a trap. <laughs> and of course, this guy is leading them to what turns out to be kind of a fake construction site uh, designed to lure these guys in and get more intel on Enterprise and hopefully kill some high value targets. I wonder if they knew the captain and tactical officer were on, like that could have really put a huge dent in Enterprise's operations. But anyway, um, like we said, they do learn it's a trap. And one thing that I'm surprised that didn't come up was how ineffectual torture is. Exactly. You know? That's what I was thinking the whole time. It's like, it never works. It never yeah. works. Like we hopefully have learned this by now. And and I mean, again, they they kind of learn it here because the guy's playing them totally, you know, he tells them exactly what they want to hear and it feeds into this whole plan by the Zindi to lure them in. And like you said, the whole, as, as soon as that happened, I just was like, what are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. This is obviously, you know, not the right way to go here. No. Very frustrating. It, it was <laughs> frustrating, but at the same time, you know, it's all going to turn out okay because of where it falls in the storyline. But even so, that doesn't mean there aren't casualties because there are. And mm -hmm. which I think is one of the continuity errors. Is that right, Dan? Well, <laughs> now Bruce kind of set me right on this. Mm -hmm. Dang right, I did. All right. <laughs> so in televised Enterprise, there were no fatalities in season one or two. That's kind of one of the, you know, things known about Enterprise. And season three, they lose crewman Fuller in the second episode, Anomaly. And this episode takes place right before the episode Anomaly. And two crew members are killed in this novel. So there's a, there's an Enterprise Starfleet crew member who's killed uh, Ensign Chandra, I yep, want to say. Chandra, Ravi Chandra. Right, and uh, on Archer's mission. And then on the mission led by Mayweather and the Makos, which we, we should talk about as well, um, they lose a Mako crew member in uh, just a uh, really moving thing. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I, there were tears. I yeah. I did. I had tears. I, I, that, that whole bit, which we will talk about was, yeah, incredible. I had tears at the end too. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so technically it doesn't go against because they don't say in anomaly that Fuller was the first crew member lost, mm. but it feels like they mean it to be, yeah. and I, I could be wrong about that, but to me that death always really meant a lot because it was the first one, and Archer's reaction to it mm -hmm. to me is really sold it to me that it was the first. Yeah, I can see that, because I, I watched that episode immediately after I read this book, and this was this is where where Dan was saying earlier about me talking to him about it, because... Dan, it, I, I don't know if I made made it clear to you, but when you text me about that episode, I was I was like a third of the way through the episode while you when you text me about it. That's why I was like, oh, I'm happened to be watching the episode right now. No. It wasn't like I just started <laughs> it when you text. I was already into it, and 
Mm. I know what the scene you're talking about. And by the way, when you said Fuller from that episode, is it because you have such a good memory or did you watch that recently? Um, I, when I did my review in 2012, I looked it uh, up or, or, or I watched the episode. I'm not sure which, okay. but I'm totally cribbing from my review in 2012. <laughs> okay, gotcha. That's like, okay oh, because you're cribbing yourself. That? So exactly. It's all good. But, uh, yeah, Archer gives him a look in sickbay, the officer. I mean, well, I mean, he's dead and you, know, you can just see that, that weight. I think it was Archer. <laughs> I'm not even sure if it was Archer, but it was somebody. But <laughs> anyway, um, that, yeah, this is the, you know, we've, we've lost a crew member and, um, but yeah, it's not said that this is the first, um, there's actually a, a point where Reed and, uh, Tripp are talking they're having like five guys or something in the mess hall. And Reed says, Ooh, their fries are the best. I know I had it today. Reed <laughs> says, you know, it's fortunate that we haven't lost more people. And Trip basically says, yeah, well, it probably won't be the last. So you can kind of take that as maybe being it's the first because I'm making a comment to it. But um, I don't know why I'm going on and on about that. But um, I feel like this novel works within the context of those two episodes. I think it, it's it's fine because mm-hmm. even though there's just there's loss, it, and I think Dan, you pointed out that in the novel they made a comment that another funeral, but we haven't lost anybody mm-hmm. on this mission yet. Yeah, and so I made the comment to you online that probably what they mean by another funeral means another death caused by the Zindi after the millions that died on earth yet another yeah. funeral mm-hmm. yeah because and it, people on enterprise be, yeah. yeah people on enterprise lost people trip wasn't mm-hmm. the only one <laughs> but That's we true, get into yeah. that more when when we uh get into gutierrez's minor storyline which i just i'm just going to stop and talk about this for a second really mm-hmm. that far in the future a woman still has to worry about losing her job because she's pregnant really mm-hmm. is that really how far we've come anyway <laughs> just just the makos they're that just with that yeah but it's just yeah. to me that was just like ugh. but but then <laughs> it's turned on its ear at the end when you know she goes and and sees um gosh i can think of his first name joss the uh, <laughs> major Hayes? major Hayes. thank you I kept wanting to say Hicks, and I'm like, no, that's aliens. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a corporal. Gosh, Brandy, come on. Getting my sci-fi mixed up. But uh, but yeah, I, I appreciated the resolution of that situation. But uh, when it first happened, I'm just like, oh. But it mirrors things that are still happening even today with women mm-hmm. in the workforce and women in the military. And so I shouldn't, I'm not really complaining about it. I was a little little upset about it at first. And I thought, no, go ahead and shine a light on this. Go ahead. It's still, it's still happening. And so let's still talk about it. Yeah, that was 12 years ago, but it's still happening. So I I ended up being okay with it. (laughs) That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way, I guess, shining a light on it. Because I'm a woman. No, that's and I mean that's great. Now, like, I think, appreciate the pers- the different perspective. Yes. It all ties I'm together. I'm just glad we got clarity that she's a woman. Thank you. Um, yes. But I identify as female. So 
but it, do you think the why do you think the makers have an issue with the pregnancy thing? Well, I don't see in the end the makers didn't actually have an issue with it. Hayes didn't actually have an issue with it, would. but she thought they would because oh, now she can't be running into fights when she's 8 months pregnant. Why not? Uh, I mean, exactly. is it a physical is it because is it because they physically they think she physically physically can't do the fight or do you think it's because they there's a innocent life inside of there and we want to protect that life? I think it's probably a combination of the two. And the the thing that's that's the most upsetting to her about it is that she was told she was sterile. And so mm. she never bothered to worry about any kind of contraceptives because she was told she couldn't have children. And now all of a sudden she's pregnant and she doesn't know what to do with that. She has not prepared herself to be a mother. She doesn't have the first clue what to do with a child. And does she really want her partner in crime here? I shouldn't say crime. Her partner in this pregnancy to be, you know, part of her life as her husband. I mean, just all of these things that she has to think about that she never had been prepared for because she was told this would never happen. Mm. And also apparently was told or was under the impression or figured that this would throw a complete wrench in her career mm -hmm. and stuff, which contributes directly to her worrying about this and stressing about it, which impacts her performance on the mission and all of this stuff, you know, it's just like all these ripple effects of some stupid decision by whoever made the rules for the Makos at some point, mm. apparently, but maybe not actually. Like, oh, it's it's frustrating that that she's put in this position, yeah. really, because, it, you know. Because yeah, it wasn't just it about the mission. Be. It was her career that she was worried about. Right. It was her whole career, her whole life you know, was all of a sudden a big question mark in her mind, which shouldn't be the case, you know? No. And like, it's, it's, it's understandable, obviously. It's a, it's a huge thing that has happened, a huge revelation. But at the same time, there should be, you'd think by then, some support in place that they could go, okay, this has happened. I need to talk to somebody about this and then figure out what to do. Not have to bottle it up and keep it inside for fear of someone finding out because it will lead to A, B, C, and D and oh my God, you know, which is, oh, it's so unfair and ridiculous. And then they and all figure it out before she even tells them. Like they all know instantly she's pregnant. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's like they can smell the hormone change. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's happens. You start producing different hormones when you're pregnant. That's just a fact. So... Mm. I wonder what it's like with an Orion that's pregnant then. Mm. That could be dangerous. I guess it would depend on whether or not they're pregnant with a boy or a girl. Have we ever <laughs> seen a pregnant Orion though? I no. We have. I I haven't even seen uh an old Orion, really. Ooh, I've only seen point. Clint Howard. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he looked right. pregnant. He did look yeah. pregnant, so. Yeah. He had a nice little punch going on in the front. And I'm like, yeah, you rock that grandpa punch. You do it. And we know what his baby would look like because we saw that in the first season of TOS. Yep. That's terrifying. <laughs> 
Wow. I'm sorry. Oh. This this is what happens when you put Bruce and me together. It g- goes completely down tangent lane. And so. we're live. Oh, wait. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the good old days. <laughs> tangent lane is fun. We've been there many times. But before we get too far down it, we should talk a little bit about the mission that we've kind of been referring to here. Yes. That Mayweather and these Makos are on. Uh, basically, they're told by T'Pol, and what's the phrase she used? Do everything prudent, logical, and something else oh, that yeah. doesn't mean go out in spacesuits and blow up a thing. Oh, gosh, let me let me go to my Kindle. <laughs> I will find this. Oh, good, because I have a hardcover book. I mean, a hard copy book. I can't do a search like that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's okay. So don't don't wait for me. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, they they're basically doing recon. They're going they're supposed to find out everything they can about this uh basically it's a fuel refinery and fueling station kind of thing in this nebula type thing. And they get there and they get some data on it. They figure out a way to kind of hide themselves and Chang decides let's Look, let's take a closer look, first of all, and Mayweather disagrees, but figures out a way to get them closer. And then once they're there, Chang says, all right, everybody, let's get in spacesuits. Let's set some charges and blow this thing up. And Mayweather is apoplectic. <laughs> he does not think this is a good idea. I love that word. I love it. I know. It's, it's great. Word of the day, word of the day, toilet paper, man. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm kidding. But so they they do go on this mission. Chang overrides Mayweather and says, no, we're doing this. And Mayweather is not pleased, but says he's going to go with them and suits up as well. And they go and they encounter a booby trap while they're setting these and get stuck on the thing. And the thing's counting down 30 seconds till it's going to blow. And Mayweather uses his Starfleet ingenuity to stop the countdown and then figure out a way to get them all loose and all that kind of thing. And so they use their skills together and come together as a team, but there's interference and they can't set the, the uh, bombs off remotely. And it's down to just two Makos left Gutierrez, who's going through this whole crisis that we talked about. And I want to say private Eddie, Evie, Evie, that's it. And they're kind of having a standoff and it's not revealed until much later after they're all back. And there's a surprise reveal that Gutierrez did survive. She went back to the shuttle pod and, um, and private EB sacrificed himself to detonate the spatial charges from up close. And like you said, it's very moving. It's a beautiful scene and it's really well done. And I loved the whole perspectives between Mayweather and Chang. And, you know, when when Chang gives an order and Mayweather, you know, blay that order on the authority of Captain Archer. And it says that <laughs> Corporal Chang is just yelling curses. Yeah. <laughs> and Mayweather's like, yeah, 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 shut up. We got to figure this out. And Chang's just, you know, beep, 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 <laughs> I imagine. Yes. And it's great stuff. There's really, really great stuff in this. I, I agree. I love this whole sequence. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. And what T'Pol said was to do whatever is most appropriate, prudent, and logical. Ah, 
Yes. Which is, you know, blowing a thing up. Absolutely. Got to blow a thing up (laughs) because that's appropriate, prudent. And okay, it's not. It might be appropriate and prudent and logical. Not so much. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, was this does put a significant crimp in the Zindi's plans. And apparently, and this is what I was talking about earlier when I said it surprised me in how it did eventually work its way into affecting the outcome of the season, you know, retconning a little bit, but it still works, is that, you know, the Zindi weapon would have probably been launched quite a few, quite a while earlier if this mission hadn't succeeded, which I thought was a really interesting uh, twist. I like it. I like it. Yeah. And it's, it's, this is one of those situations like I was talking about earlier is there are strengths that Travis has that Chang does not. And without the two of them being there and working with each other, none of this would have succeeded. Because you mm-hmm. take out Chang, you're you're missing a, an integral part of the puzzle. Same thing if you take out Travis. They had to both be there with their different skills in order to make this work. And make mm-hmm. it work, they did. Except for Private Corporal. Except for EB. I don't remember his rank. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. Uh, so when we record the show, when we do these shows, we can see each other on video. And over Dan's shoulder is Travis Mayweather from the Mirror Universe, from In the Mirror Darkly. And it just mm-hmm. made me think, in a lot of ways, in that uh, in those episodes, he's more like a Mako officer because <laughs> he's yeah. the head of security. <laughs> yeah, because that's pretty much his opposite. Yeah. He turned into Chang in the Mirror Universe. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Everything he supposedly hates. Makes me wonder if Chang is, you know, this messy Starfleet officer. (laughs) He's a pilot on a starship. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he doesn't have any problem going out in space. He doesn't get space sick at all. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that. The, The whole Starfleet, you know, Travis has lived in space his entire life, pretty much. And his ease at navigating, you know, zero gravity and all that kind of stuff. And there there are so many great moments in this whole part of the book. Mm. For me, one of my absolute favorites was when, you know, they're trying to figure out how to stop the countdown and Travis is talking to the one Mako who's left on the shuttle pod. He says, I need you to access these controls and do this. And the Mako says, okay, uh, what's it look like? <laughs> Travis goes, okay, we've got 15 seconds. That's not going to work. <laughs> Like that just kind of like, oh, crap moment. Yeah. And how he, because he's a Starfleet officer and a boomer, he can get around in um, zero gravity much easily than the Mako officers like Chang that's just like, you know, messing up and hitting into things. And, and thinking he's going to throw up in his suit. Right. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. That's never fun. Nope. <laughs> nope. But yeah, no, that whole mission, I thought was really good. And it's it goes back to I, I really like them using Mayweather because you can't use Hayes because Hayes still has a problem with them till much later. So using, you know, Travis and Chang as this kind of microcosm for this conflict between the squids and the sharks, you know, it works really, really well. And to see that play out over the course of this mission is just so much fun because you know, they both kind of get their moments. Like we said, you know, there are moments that Chang 
knows exactly what needs to be done and, and Mayweather's in the wrong and Mayweather knows exactly how to save all their butts when they're stuck on the surface of that thing. When Chang thinks all is lost, you know, and I just love that. Yeah. They wouldn't have been, even been able to get that close without Travis letting the mm-hmm. things floating in the air. Oh gosh. Things, the technical term things to attach to the hull <laughs> and make them look like just another floating piece of garbage, basically. So, mm. yeah, kind of like uh, another ship just detaching and floating away with the rest of the garbage. I'm sure that's not familiar to either of you. <laughs> I don't really understand why the authors, in, with these two missions going on, they play out t- similarly in a sense. Like, just that they're going to some station device or something and they both are going to blow it up and those those two stories are very similar like it wasn't as if one was doing going to a station or a fuel depot or whatever and the other is going to a planet or something to do something it just Mm -hmm. it's not that i didn't like it it's just I, i don't know why they were so similar the way those stories played out just well, interesting. Yeah. yeah, technically, Archer and crew did go to a planet first. They just didn't stay there. Well, that's true. That's yes. true. <laughs> so there you yeah. go. Well, so the other, and this is just the total pedantic Trekkie in me, the other minor issue I had, and as I was reading it this time, I started highlighting every incident, in, instance of this and then gave up after three chapters. I know exactly what so you're going to say. <laughs> they refer... To to Paul as sub commander, almost every time in this book, and I mean it's it's a minor thing, but she did not have the rank of sub commander in season three. No one ever referred to her as sub commander in season three. And if someone out there finds an instance of them referring to her as sub commander in season three, that's a mistake too, because mm-hmm. she did <laughs> because not have that rank. She did not hold that rank. She was a member of the Vulcan space expeditionary whatever Science whatever they called it in Enterprise. Thing? Yeah. yeah the thing that whatever spock was supposed to Enterprise. go into and then anyway <laughs> yeah probably um she was a, she was a member of that group in season one and two and then she resigned her commission for season three and actually had no rank if you look at what she wears which is still ridiculous mm-hmm. because it, but anyway that aside it's got no rank <laughs> on it it's got no insignia she's just to paul they only refer to her as to paul and then in season four, she joined Starfleet and is commander to Paul. Yes. So, well, maybe that's my that's my little. It was annoying. Okay, so this is where page, I try to work it all out. Whatever. So this is very early <laughs> in the mission, and they're just used to calling her sub commander, and maybe they felt that even though she resigned, for example, if someone leaves the military, for example, like Kirk leaves the military, they still refer to him as Admiral Kirk. I should say That's not true. military, but when he leaves Starfleet, he's still Admiral Kirk. If somebody leaves service, they still can be referred to by that rank. And they may have continued to call her sub commander. And over time, she started correcting people that since she's no longer there and it's in Vulcan, it's a Vulcan custom not to be called by their old rank anymore. <laughs> and so as the season progressed, that's why you don't hear them call her sub commander anymore. Yeah. And it's it's mm. possible that they were <laughs> doing it. Smirk like, yeah, right. Yeah. It's possible <laughs> they were doing it as a sign of respect, but right. maybe into Paul's eyes it wasn't a sign of respect cuz you know, different cultures view things different ways and so 
I'm sure she set him straight. Well, and think about this too. <laughs> Imagine let let's think. Okay, let's go to the TOS for for example. And think about those three seasons playing out. And just imagine if for some reason Spock decides he's dropping out of Starfleet, but Kirk still wants Spock to be on the ship to help out with some things or whatever. And how comfortable would the crew be now, you know, would, would, you know, Chekhov feel comfortable no longer calling, you know, Mr. Spock or Commander Spock, you know, Spock, that'd be a little weird. (laughs) Well, that's a... That's a horrible example because no one ever called him Commander. I know. Spock. As soon as it I got halfway through it, I realized it was Spock. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like if it's, you're calling, he's still Mister. If you were okay, so going back to T'Pol, if you were, if this is a senior officer and you call that senior officer sub commander, it would be mm-hmm. weird to all of a sudden refer to them by their name and not call them sub commander. So it would be kind of an awkward transition for a while. And yet, if you watch the entirety of Enterprise Season 3, they call her T'Pol or Sir. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. It's, all, it's all fine. <laughs> You're right, Dan, and we're all wrong and trying to justify it yes. in a very silly way. No, I tried I'm to sorry make we wasted your work. time. <laughs> it's a mistake. Give me this I one. I tried to make <laughs> everything work. Just like I tried to make this book work that we reviewed on a past episode, Star Trek The Next Generation Cats. <laughs> There's, there's a reason in the universe they were all cats at one point. <laughs> in an alternate a, universe, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Not, yeah, in the Idic comic, you know, there's got to be a universe. Oh my gosh, Dan, wouldn't it be great if they worked in cats into that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that would actually be pretty good. Oh gosh, you have just changed my life, guys. You really have. <laughs> Well, before we get too far down this rabbit hole or, or cat hole, I guess. I don't know. Before we get too deep Let's, in the litter box. Uh, <laughs> why don't we uh, kind of wrap up with our final thoughts on Last Full Measure and uh, maybe give it a rating. So, well, Brandy, wait, 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 wait. there's I'm, one thing we haven't talked uh-oh. about. Exactly. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Brandy. Trip is He's alive! I loved that so much. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Totally forgot about that. Yeah, no, the whole. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Well, there's a reason reason for Mm -hmm. the B. Yeah. So, what's interesting is when I first read this novel, I'd always heard it was the one that's revealed that Trip is alive. And what's odd is it doesn't really play into the story of the which novel is why dan forgot much <laughs> which is totally why i forgot i was totally focused on the plot and that sort of thing but yeah we get this kind of framing sequence where we have trip who turn well this guy that turns out to be trip uh by the end of the novel with lawrence marvick who was one of the designers of the original starship enterprise the original constitution class the original Starship Enterprise takes on a whole different meaning when we're talking about Star Trek Enterprise now. Yeah, but it so, wasn't a Constitution class, so that's okay. I meant, yeah, <laughs> I meant the Constitution First class. USS <laughs> Enterprise. Yeah. Right. Unless you count that ring ship, which is in a... F- no, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we get this framing story where they're at the a memorial that's pictured on the cover, and it's the Starfleet War Memorial, and it, you know 
commemorates it was first erected to commemorate the people lost in the Zindi attack and on the Enterprise defending. And then it just kept getting added to with the Romulan War and, you know, the conflicts that followed supposedly the Klingon War that we see in Discovery, for example, and, and all of those wars get added over the years. And uh, at this time, I guess that wouldn't have happened yet. But <laughs> man, so many timelines. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so we find out that this old man who's visiting the war memorial for the first time in his life is actually Trip. And what a what a great gift yes. <laughs> to undo that horrible, horrible yes. death in These Are the Voyages. I don't consider which, These Are the Voyages canon, so there we are. No. I, th I think a certain segment of fandom actually legally has to spit after saying <laughs> the name of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, when that first, when the book first started and we're the old man and, and Marvick are walking up to the memorial, I'm thinking, Oh, please be trip. Please be trip. It probably won't be trip. I'm just thinking fondly of the way I'd really like it to be. And then in the end, I was right. And that's when I started bawling my little eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, good. So yeah, good. that that whole scene is excellent. And of course, we get a little bit of a cameo by the family Kirk yep. at the end. Too. Yep, I was uh, not surprised that that turned out to be the family Kirk. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things the universe <laughs> feels smaller that we keep like, you know, have to run to the Kirks at the same time. But and and that that part was okay. I mean, it wasn't it didn't make the story. It was the the reveal of trip that really made that that piece work. But Dan, I I was thinking the same thing. The first time I read this back when the book first came out, I had no idea that this reveal was going to happen with trip. And when it did, I just remember like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. No, trip dot. Wait, how are they going to work this out? Like, I couldn't wait. Yeah, okay, there's got to be another book. <laughs> so that's why, as you said at the beginning of the episode, this book technically really isn't a relaunch book. But in my mind, I think of it as the kickoff to the relaunch. So when mm -hmm. someone asks me, what's the first book I should read in the relaunch? I kind of steer them towards this one because of that reveal. And then the payoff comes later in the other books as to how that all works out. But yeah, the, and I don't remember the first time I read this thinking how it doesn't really connect to the overall story. But this time it really stood out to me because Trip doesn't mm -hmm. really have much of a part in the overall story that we get. No, he's, in the Zindi. he's out cold and sick right. bay for most of it. But what, the, what yeah. parts we do see is him having nightmares all the time about his sister's mm -hmm. death. Over right. and over and over. It's every night. And that, you know, and yeah, he, he let that, that anger grow, but I think he controlled it better than maybe somebody else would have. Because honestly, if I was feeling the way he was feeling, I, I wouldn't have been nearly as nice. I would have been blowing up at people all over the place. Anyone who just slightly irritated me would just get it. So mm. I appreciated his restraint. And I appreciated that little peek into his mind of what really was going on with him. Because he, he talks about it a little bit during season three, but we don't really get the images like we get in this book. And granted, his part is small 
except for the the sandwich bread around the story. But it, I think it was important to show us what he was really going through, what he was really mm. dealing with. Well, I also think when we get to that last epilogue, which there's the epilogue <laughs> is always the last, but when we get to that, you know, it's portrayed as if, you know, there's this old man that is at this monument that is looking at those heroes and those that were lost during the Zindi War. And so we really don't know if any of our Enterprise crew are still alive at this time. You can almost read this and assume that you know, they all may be gone and this is a memorial to them. But we do know of one officer that is gone and it's Trip. So it's really ironic when the reveal is no, Trip is alive. So you kind of end the book thinking Trip's alive and the rest could have been deceased by now, but yet we know from the end of the last episode of Enterprise, it's Trip that died and the rest lived on. So it kind of flipped things, mm. you know, and, and, and the whole memorial and looking at the Zindi War and those who fought and such kind of is a nice bookend to the story. Because it shows in the future of this war. Because if you look at the book alone and not tie it into the rest of the season, if someone who never watched Enterprise and just read this book alone, they don't know how the Zindi War resolves. You would read this book and go, wait, there's this Zindi race that, that attacked Earth and now they're going after the Zindi and the book ends without that being resolved. But then when you flash forward mm. to the memorial, you kind of get a bit of a resolution to that, that, you know, it was a, this is a, we're giving you a piece of a war story and at the very end we're telling you that the war did end and those did sac people did sacrifice themselves and earth continued to move on without being destroyed. Yeah. That's a really good point. I never thought of that because especially earlier when we were talking about how the structure of the novel and some of the arcs, the characters go through, don't get a payoff. That's kind of cool. And I hadn't thought of that, that the whole arc of season three kind of gets a bit of a payoff here. Yeah in the in the book so and, that's that's good that's and cool. i always thought of it i mean not always when i was reading it and i reread the end again because i wanted to because trip's alive so um i reread the end and what he was really there for is not necessarily for all of the other sacrifices that happened during the zindi war and all of those other wars it was for his sister and he had been avoiding that for decades, decades, because I think maybe this is just a personal feeling. I think maybe he felt that if he went to this place and, you know, saw this memorial, that that was it. She was really gone and he wasn't still ready to accept that because we are not always logical beings. And sometimes, you know, sometimes when a spouse dies and like two years later, you still have all of their stuff and you realize, yeah, I really should get rid of this. But once you do that, they're really gone. And so it's a very difficult step to make. And I think that that's kind of what was going on in his mind. They didn't really specify that very strongly, but that was my personal feeling on it. Well, and to add to that, it could also be, you know, he struggles just that his crew is gone too. Yeah, it could be. But to Paul mm -hmm. should probably still be alive. Yeah, because Vulcans. I would hope Vulcans so. Vulcans are long lived. Yeah. Long Unless life. she ate some bad broccoli and 
<laughs> but, you know, yeah. she is coming back in Discovery as bad. the new captain of the USS Discovery. <laughs> I am on board. If they don't get Jolene Blaylock for that. <laughs> Daniel Dakin. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Just somebody from Enterprise. <laughs> Corporal Chang joined Starfleet. I yeah, guess, and... yeah. He decided that he was going to force himself to get over another that century. space sickness. <laughs> so trial by fire. Oh, you're afraid of spiders? Cover yourself in spiders. You won't be afraid of them anymore. <laughs> Face your fear. I don't know. Yeah, it could work. It could yeah. work. So, um, <laughs> Brandy, sorry for <laughs> prematurely. Announcing this earlier, I, I apologize greatly You're for forgetting You're the whole forgiven. point of the novel. It's, it's fine. But uh, any final thoughts and, and a rating for this novel, Last Full Measure, uh, that I briefly forgot the title of? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I really enjoyed reading this book. Going into it, I had not a single idea what to expect and the way it started kind of took me off guards and I thought off guards off guard excuse me and I thought oh this isn't necessarily going to be what I think it is and for me it was a real page turner I I read it I think in about three days total which with work that's an accomplishment <laughs> with me because work takes up a lot of time but uh, I enjoyed it fr really from beginning to end and uh, if I if I have to give it a rating, I would give it um, four old man trips out of five. Nice, excellent. It's a very good rating. I really enjoyed <laughs> a lot it. of lot of decades in in that rating. Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> um, Bruce, how about you? What are your kind of final thoughts? The first time I read the book, I really enjoyed it. The second time I read the book, I also enjoyed it. Uh, again. I don't really know why they picked the storyline to take place when it did. I think that limited the authors, but I like the, as Brandy said, the bread of the sandwich around it, you know, the whole thing with trip and such, but I thought it was a good way. I think this is a good book to read. Also, if you're going to rewatch or never have watching or going to watch season three, because it gives you more depth into the Mako officers and we get more about Mayweather than we've gotten in a lot of the uh, the whole series. So we're getting some depth into these characters that are kind of in the background or or very one dimensional through some of the uh, episodes, because as I'm doing some of the rewatch I'm looking at those Mako officers a little differently and I'm looking at Mayweather a little differently. And uh, there's little things in there that, that I enjoyed, like um, the mobs of the twenties book. Uh, I think it was Mayweather's has that book or something and, and it <laughs> lost it somewhere <laughs> on some planet or whatever. <laughs> so that's a little nod to TOS. So there's a lot of stuff. And, and I, what Brandy said earlier, the characters are spot on. I could hear them. I mean, it's, and, and it was a, it was a quick read for me because it just flowed. It just, it just flowed like an episode. It just felt like it was just another episode in the season. It was just, it was just moving. It was just playing out nice. So I, after saying all that, I really enjoyed the book. So I would give this uh, Chang's Beep, Beep, Beep. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. This is... 
<laughs> that really tickled me. <laughs> oh. So yeah, this is uh this is a book that I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed it the first time I read it. Uh, maybe not as much as I did this time around, which is interesting. L- reading my review from a few years ago and looking at my uh the score that I gave it on Goodreads and some of my thoughts, I think some of those things that I perceived, I guess, as continuity <laughs> issues bugged me more than it probably sounds it sounds like they really bugged me this time around they they actually didn't it's just kind of a neat little thing that i wanted to point out those things i didn't get hung up on as much this time and i kind of focused more on the story and what it was saying about the characters and that kind of fundamental relationship between the starfleet officers and the mako contingent and i really like that story i I love that it takes place during season three. I love that it takes this unique situation that they're in during that season and examines it really closely in a way that an episode of television really can't or doesn't have the time to do. It can really delve deep into what this new situation means for the people involved, how they're reacting, how they're coping on a day-to-day basis with A, this horrific attack that's taking place on their planet, and B, the fact that, you know, you've got the really big thing like that, and you've also got the really small thing of, I've got this jerk roommate now that I can't stand. I love that stuff. I love character examinations, and I love what it reveals about the characters that we love, and especially, like you said, Mayweather. We don't really get to know much about him during the series, and what we do is, do get to know is kind of superficial and and you know basic things about his character but here we really get inside his head and we really see how he thinks and how he reacts to things and it works really really well so my previous rating was three out of five i think this time around i'm gonna have to give it four fake zindi platforms that are blown up by warp core breaching freighters (laughs) out of five <laughs> you know, I would go so far to say as if you're going to wa- rewatch season three of Enterprise, watch episode one, read this book, watch episode two, completely skip over extinction later in the season. Yep. And then it doesn't and then exist. just finish it off, you know, because this is a wonderful replacement for an episode that should never have happened. <laughs> so now let me ask you this. If, if somebody never watched Enterprise before and they're watching it for the first time, would you tell them to read this book? before they get to the end of the series because I would not I would not because Mm. then the impact of the bread would not be as strong so (laughs) and we want that bread to have an impact or wouldn't it be interesting if somebody read this book and they're like oh so obviously trip you know lives on beyond the show and then when they get to the last episode wait what he can't be dead because in the book he lives (laughs) yeah and we never see his body we never see his body that's true. That's true. So and it's all on the holodeck anyway. <laughs> oh, that, that episode is so awful. <laughs> oh, my God. And speaking of op- awful episodes, Extinction. You're absolutely right. This is a total tangent, but I, I've got to ask. The only thing that I can think that lasts from that episode forward is they have a they have a copy of that virus at the end of the episode. Do they ever use that again? Does that ever come up? Like. Why does that episode exist? It shouldn't. Sorry. Okay. Shouldn't. Rant over. That's an awful That's episode. the last one I just watched. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> but no, it, I, I wonder if that will play out in a book. I don't recall if it ever has played out yet, but maybe it will someday. Well, I'm on a mission to read all the Enterprise books, so if hmm. it comes up in one of them that you haven't covered yet, I will let you know. I don't think it does. Hmm. I don't recall. I'm pretty sure it doesn't because that was just a throwaway yeah. episode. But wouldn't it be interesting if it came back in a future, like like in TOS or Next Generation or whatever? Mm. Or Discovery. Or Discovery. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. That would be the weirdest reference. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Brandy, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you when you're, they're not listening to you on Literary Tracks? <laughs> Well, I hope you'll listen to me on Literary Treks again someday. But you can also find me on Trek FM as a co-host of Warp 5, which I mentioned earlier. And you can find me on Twitter as Brandywine12. Brandy is spelled with an I, and 12 is the number 12. And I also do a podcast with my husband called The Dark Corner Podcast, which you can find on strangeanddeadly.com or any podcatching device. And uh, we just like to look at pop culture and such through sort of a darker lens. Come into the dark corner. We have cookies. Sugar cookies with frosting. <laughs> we like those over here. And, uh, and I'll pop my head up in the Babel Conference uh, every now and again. Sometimes I even comment on stuff. <laughs> Mostly I lurk. Me too. I, if you don't see a lot by me, it's because I'm lurking and I'm reading all your comments. And Yeah, so... Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciated it. And yeah, we definitely should have you on again soon. I would love to. I read comics too, guys. Just saying. Okay. <laughs> thank you very Excellent. much. I really enjoyed this. It's good to see you both again. I really enjoyed having Brandy on because doing Live from the Edge with her has always been a lot of fun. And since Discovery ended its season about a month ago, I haven't talked to her since then. So it was great to have her back. Yeah. No, it's always great to have uh, new voices on the show. And Brandy was great. That was a really fun discussion. And just as an aside, I wanted to bring this up. I totally forgot. But speaking of Star Trek Discovery, I taught with some coworkers today that I haven't seen in a long time. And I had one of these coworkers that I knew from way back when stop me in the hall and say, Dan, it's so great to see you. You know, I'm not really a big Trekkie, but every once in a while I listen to your podcast just to kind of hear your voice and see how you're doing. <laughs> oh, except the new Star Trek, that Discovery. I really, really, really like that. That show is amazing. So that show is bringing people into Star Trek. Anyway, I just wanted to share that because it's a really cool story. Yes. And uh, since you mentioned Discovery, uh, we have a Voyager novel coming up with an author who works on Discovery, and she's going to be joining us yeah. on the show. How exciting is that? Ooh, I can't wait. Kirsten Byers coming. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be a fun discussion. Well, it's been fun talking about Trip and Enterprise and Kirsten Byer and Discovery. And Archer and, all of that. and his veins and, in his neck. And Archer's there. veins. But thankfully... Those are not the only things we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. 
you're killing me. I'm going to pull my hair out if that happens because I really do need to know. What if, like, <laughs> I just had a crazy idea. What if they get the captain in the first episode, but they continue on with these lower deck characters so well that we just never see the captain? And it's like like the teacher in Charlie Brown, like... <laughs> The 602 Club. And I don't know that I would want much more humor in this movie. Right. I feel yeah. like this whole is, is, this is a survival story. Like this is her yes. surviving what's happening to her, not her controlling the situation like we see in future Tomb Raider movies where yep. she kind of controls what's happening. And, res- and this is definitely a... Uh, Lara Croft is responding to what's happening to her. Like the entire scene on the island is her trying to get away. Warp 5. So the A plot is the dog and the B plot is his infatuation with Zapal? Well, there's actually kind of a C plot. Well, as part of the A plot is of why um, Porthos is ill. Okay, is it... Why is Porthos ill again? <laughs> I'm going to say this is definitely not essential. It's- okay, I'm not saying that it's essential or not essential. Continuing mission. Yeah, there's a certain concession with that. Um, if you look at the and, and you're, you know, the refit, obviously, is your example. For the director's cut remaster of motion picture, they added a few more CG shots. They're quite hard to tell because they painstakingly tried. You know, Foundation Imaging was really, really good at that, and they built a certain rig. And you know, it's lit. You know, the pylons being lit from the ship itself. The, the there's underlights. There's you know, like the registry and stuff. But actually, you are correct in a sense. A couple of the lights, especially on the nacelles, uh, don't actually come from a bulb. There's no practical way those lights can emanate from anywhere without magic. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an apple eater, then... You keep the doctor away. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app, because you'll get the latest episodes of Literary Treks as they're published. And you can also then leave us a star rating and written review, and we would really appreciate that. But you know what? If you're not an Apple eater or an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. There's a way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, and that's to become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really would appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, earlier in the episode, we had mentioned that we kind of get around into the Babel conference and read your comments. We don't always maybe comment, but we're reading stuff. So if you want to be involved in our listeners group on Facebook, the Babel conference, just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook. And 
that group should come right up. And if you like to send us an email, you can do that by going to our website. It's trek.fm slash contact. And then you can select Literary Treks as the show, and that email will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. I actually just saw this question asked in the Babel conference a little while ago. How do you know what books are coming up and which books have been covered in the past? So, you know, goodreads.com. We've got our group there, Literary Treks. Just search that on Goodreads. And I just want to throw and- real quick on Goodreads. I also posted a spreadsheet of all our episodes and what the features were so perfect excellent that's awesome so yeah just search literary treks on goodreads and click join group and one of us will let you write in uh just answer yes to do you listen to literary literary treks and you know even if you don't we'll let you in anyway because there are always great conversations happening about all the books and comics there We'd like to take this opportunity to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Che Mutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Now, Bruce, when you're not leading a team of Makos to destroy a fuel depot, where can we find you? You can find me destroying things on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can also find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And, you know, check it out. We've got a new Star Wars movie coming again in May called Solo, a Star Wars story. And, of course, you can find me lurking around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And, Dan, when you're not at a monument wondering if you should reveal yourself to the world that you're still alive, where can people find you? Well, you can follow my very much alive exploits, thankfully. On Twitter, I'm at Kertrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, facebook.com slash Productions, and like Bruce, maybe lurking, maybe commenting and posting every once in a while, but mostly just lurking in the Babel Conference. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that, light reading? To each his own, number one.